Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. Which granny were you allowed to see on Thursday? We're going for a pint. Three. And I said, well, I don't know. And they said, but it's your job to know. And I said, no, it isn't. <laughs> if I hear QE, quantitative easing, I think that's what happens to my trousers when I put on weight. One. We have liftoff. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So Planet Normal's five. Five episodes old today and counting. Born back in May in the midst of the lockdown, we were crawling by early June, and now we're firmly into podcast infancy, aren't we, Alison? This week marking our fifth blast-off, and my God, haven't we grown. Nothing infantile, though, about your fabulous guest last week, Lionel Shriver, world-class novelist, teller of tough truths, as you christened her, Alison, the word warrior. What an interview and what a hit with our Planet Normal listeners. Yeah, I think they really adored Lionel, Liam. I think that, you know, to have someone, not just someone so clever, but someone who's not afraid to put into brilliant words what so many people are feeling. I think people can feel very alone and suddenly Lionel saying exactly what they want to hear. What also caught my eye this week, Alison, was that the BBC launched a £100 million Diversity Fund. Now, this is a subject very close to my heart. I've spent a lot of time in in broadcasting, as you know. And since I became a mainstream broadcaster back in uh, the late 90s with Channel 4 News, we have made huge progress in this country in terms of more women on screen, more ethnic minorities on screen and behind screen. And I completely applaud all that. But where we've gone backwards, as I've often discussed with you, is in terms of diversity of opinion, And sociological diversity. I do not believe, and I've written this many times, I do not believe that the version of Liam today, you know, a lower middle class at best kid, would have had the chances that I had to get into mainstream broadcasting. And that's the problem. A lot of people are looking at this diversity fund and thinking, yeah, that's fine. We need all different types of people, but we need more diverse opinions. And is there any chance of my kid getting a job at the BBC? Uh, No, I really don't think so. I mean, it was interesting, wasn't it, that Tony Hall, the Director General, said that this diversity initiative had come about after the senseless killing of George Floyd and what it tells us about the stain of systemic racism. That didn't sound to me like the kind of diversity you and I are talking about, which is opinions from outside the Guardian reading classes. I forget how much money the BBC spends on buying The Guardian, but I think they are basically the circulation, aren't they? And, it's certainly uh, the, in-house, where, where, the in-house paper, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> senior BBC ex- executives have admitted that, usually after they've retired. I think we saw, didn't we, obviously during the whole Brexit business, that there was just this massive disconnect between what is supposed to be the national broadcaster and the actual people who are paying to see themselves represented. Some, something that 
was interesting, Liam, which was back in February, there was a study which showed that black and ethnic minority people were significantly overrepresented on British television. So BAME people account for about 13% of the national workforce, but get 23% of on-screen roles. I don't know if you'll guess, the most underrepresented minority are older people. So the over 50s account for 20.6% of on-screen contributions, but are actually 31% of the workforce. So, so um, thee and me, we are the discriminated against ones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for diversity, but I think in a democracy, the most important form of diversity is diversity of opinion and thought. That's what should really matter. I mean, I think, you know, we're all voters. We're all meant to be part of this huge civic society. And I think the mainstream broadcasters have really gone backwards in recent years when it comes to recruiting people with a a broad range of socioeconomic backgrounds. I remember talking to you about something that really affected me a few years ago was watching Newsnight one night and they were talking about the impact of immigration on wages in, in the UK. And they had an academic from a university and there was this young guy, very unusually a young guy from a sort of building site. And he was explaining how the wages of him and his mates had been depressed by lots of people coming in from Eastern Europe and being able to charge a lot less and living six to a room or whatever. And I'll never forget this. This is an academic. She just looked at him and she said, no, that you know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and, 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 and you were thinking, you know, it's almost like, what would he know about it? He's just living, he's just living the life that she pontificates about in her university lecture room. And and, and I, I, I don't care what you experience every day, old son. It doesn't work in theory. It doesn't work in theory. But I think that you know those moments in life where you pick a side. Yeah. And I thought. I know what side I'm on and I know what side you're on. And Planet Normal is on the side of the young man whose living conditions have been depressed by, you know, this mass immigration. I'll never forget that. And that was the BBC at its best saying, no, that doesn't accord with what we think. Nice people think this. And you can't be a nice person because you think that even though it's the truth. That's a subject I touched on um, with our interviewee this week, which we'll come on to because we must mention before we do that, that we're going for a pint. <laughs> we can go for a pint, Alison, but we have to fill in a form in triplicate a week beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if we book now for maybe like early December, get that festive Christmas drink. So we have to sign in. Nothing like a pint on the spur of the <laughs> moment. Spur of the moment. Yeah, this is, uh, these are Boris's new alleged easing of lockdown. And what's really lovely, I think, is that he keeeps urging us to use our common sense, a commodity which seems to be strangely lacking in the people who are drawing up the list. I mean, I think my, my favourite one this week, Liam, was that theatres are allowed to open without actors. I mean, oh you God. know, what could, possi- what could possibly go wrong? But the pubs thing, I mean, how is this business going to work? I mean, venues are supposed to stop the patrons dancing, singing or raising raising their voices. I mean, God forbid we should try to talk in a pub. The change of the from the two metre social distancing to one metre plus is one metre plus if you have what they call mitigations. So that means if we go to the pub, if we you know, if we get through the front door, we give our name, Matt Hancock, that's going to be my pub name. What's your pub <laughs> name going to be? <laughs> B. Johnson. B. Johnson. So there we are, M. Hancock, B. Johnson. We've got through the door. 
We're supposed to wear a mask, which makes drinking quite problematic. And then we're not... Drink through a straw, go through your head. Drink through a straw. I think we're not supposed to face each other. So you're going to be back to back in a pub, not raising your voice and not able to take your mask off. So no wonder, I think lots of companies now are, you know, understandably completely furious because it's all so erratic, isn't it? No cricket, some football. Yeah, the most socially distanced sport in the world, right? Cricket. (laughs) They say that the ball is a vector of infection. So we've got all these rules and how many people now? I mean, I I like to think in, in future there'll be a mastermind special subject on lockdown rules, you know, which granny were you allowed to see on Thursday? You can tell, can't you, when something's become an absolute laughing stock. But you I know. mean, the thing I wonder about the pub thing is, you know, you can have some of the regulars, and the landlord's going to know they are anyway. If there's any track and trace issue, if they need to be contacted, but just set a rule. Almost everyone now has debit cards. As long as you pay by debit card, then your address will be recorded. People can get hold of you via the banks. The idea that you have to take the joy out of going to the pub by filling in a form. Uh, anyway. You can you can spend a long, very long time looking for any kind of logic or sense in this. I mean, do you get the feeling that... Boris has been caught between, obviously, quite a large percentage of people have been scared half to death. So they're perfectly happy keeping And he's very, scared very... too, right? I mean, we, we've said it before. He must be scared. He had a near-death experience. Well, I think he's scared not only because of that, but I think he's also scared because, you know, coming down the line towards him is the public inquiry. Yeah. But it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. If we're going to open, businesses need to open up. I mean, obviously, your fantastic interviewee this week will talk brilliantly about that but things need to get going now if you've got hairdressers are open but all the staff have to wear visors and they're only allowed to cut three people's hair businesses are going to go under Liam and when we laugh but lots of people are having to implement lots of this nonsense aren't they they will and at least the hairdressers won't ask you where you've been on holiday because you haven't been haven't been on holiday. And not only haven't you been on holiday, I think chatting... You're not going to go on holiday. Not going to go on holiday. Chatting is discouraged. So God forbid you should go for a relaxing experience. I mean, it's going to be like make going to the dentist look like a kind of, you know, an exciting outing. So I think it's anti-pleasure. And I think that that's odd. It's just very hostile to people's pleasures, really. We need to be cautious, but there seems to be a certain lack of joy, at least so far, in the lifting of this lockdown. Hi there, podcast fan. It's Tom Gibbs here. I'm host of the Telegraph's Audio Football Club podcast. I'm very sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to let you know that football is finally back on the menu, and so is Audio Football Club. We'll be back in your podcast feed every Monday with analysis, chat, and sarcasm from Mina Razuki, JJ Ball, Matt Law, and many, many more. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. So in my Telegraph column last Sunday, I highlighted unemployment, which now, despite the headline figures, is probably up at around 10% already. And of course, the UK economy shrunk by a quarter during March and April, and the national debt's over 100% of GDP. So for that reason, we thought we'd invite an economist to visit us on Planet Normal, a big beast, and they don't really come much bigger than Mervyn King, who was governor of the Bank of England, of course, for a decade from 2013. Now, on Planet Normal, Alison, you and I, we've often said pretty much every week that when it comes to reporting this COVID crisis, the media has paid too little attention to the scale and implications of the economic fallout. And guess what? 
Mervyn King agrees with us. I think we should certainly be concerned about this. And one of my worries in the past three months has been that the daily focus of not only television and radio and newspapers, but also the government's own press briefings have been entirely on the health dimension of this. Now, to some extent, that's understandable. But I think the challenge facing the government has always been to navigate between two very different and very big costs. One is the lives lost from COVID-19, and the other is the damage done to the economy, and not just in terms of incomes and output and GDP, but also the health of people suffering from non-COVID-19 diseases. And navigating between those two is very difficult. And I think we probably put far too much emphasis on one to the neglect of the other. And I think we're beginning to realise now how damaging has been the shutdown to the economy. I mean, economic downturns also cost lives, right? Yes, indeed. And I think many people in the medical profession have drawn attention to the obvious and most direct effect, which is those suffering from non-COVID-19 diseases who've not been getting treatment that they should have had, but also the concern and worry about those whose businesses either have failed or could well fail in the future, the unemployment that's risen and the impact of that on well-being, and of course, not least, the damage done to children and students from the ending of their education prematurely in some cases and the interruption in others. And all of these things affect well-being, and we shouldn't neglect that. In your previous book, Mervyn, The End of Alchemy in 2016, you wrote, and I quote, another economic and financial crisis would be devastating to the legitimacy of a democratic market system. Don't we face another economic and financial crisis? Stock markets are massively overvalued. The bond market is a bubble No, I think we're facing a a serious challenge in the next five years, even if we find a vaccine fairly quickly and get out of COVID-19. The situation before we entered this problem was one where the world economy faced very many difficulties, extraordinarily low interest rates, which really are not compatible with the operation of a market economy, overvalued financial markets, and high amounts of debt. And I think the immediate concern facing us in the next few years is going to be that the very high levels of debt that we entered COVID-19 crisis with have been exacerbated with even higher levels of debt. So I think we should expect to see many defaults in the next few years as businesses struggle and as many governments in parts of the world will also struggle to repay their debt. So I think defaults could be the trigger of another financial crisis down the road. You've written that the founding of the single currency, the euro, was, quotes, the most divisive development in post-war Europe. Do you think the euro will still exist in its current form in 20 years' time? I don't know. I think in its current form, probably not. But I think which direction it will take depends on politics, and that's very hard to predict. What is very clear is that the fundamental mistake that was made was to pretend that the monetary union was an organization that would ensure that each country was going to be responsible for its own debts. That was built into the European treaty, and it was a promise made to taxpayers around the euro area. As it's turned out, 
they do not want to go down that road. They found it impossible to stick to it because it led to sovereign debt crises. And instead of letting those play out, they've entered into a gradual and slow move towards a fiscal union for which there is absolutely no democratic legitimate support around Europe. And I think what you now see is that the tension has emerged between France and Germany. They have come up with a common proposal to deal with the very big economic losses in southern Europe resulting from COVID-19. But it's a bit of a fudge and it does not resolve the underlying tension between whether or not the countries in the south and France want to have a proper fiscal and political union and countries in the north resist that because that's not what their taxpayers were promised. But I think they are reaching a crunch point and it's a big political decision. It would involve a brand new European treaty. But unless they go down that road, I think financial markets will always be dubious that the euro will be guaranteed to hold together and therefore they could emerge new sovereign debt crises down the road. My personal view is that the euro is the biggest source of systemic danger to global financial markets. Do you think that's a reasonable view? Yeah, I think it is because Germany in particular has a very large trade surplus. And as a result, the euro area as a whole is now exporting deflation to the rest of the world. And I think you're right. It is the single biggest problem in rebalancing the world economy. Uh, we have to find a way of doing that. But the biggest impediment to it is the inability of countries in the euro area to resolve the very serious problem that their exchange rates are now out of line. And since they've fixed those rates in the monetary union, it's very hard to see what they can do about it. Now, economists like me who said there may be some upsides from Brexit and tried to lay out rational economic reasons why we could do quite well outside the European Union have, of course, been pilloried and ostracised by the economics profession and indeed most of the rest of the media. You've always been very careful as a former governor of the Bank of England about not taking sides in this Brexit debate. But I think it would be fair to say that you haven't been prepared to go along with the apocalyptic projections of what a disaster Brexit would be for the UK. So let me come at this from another angle. How relieved were you, Mervyn, when it became clear that there wasn't going to be a second referendum on Brexit? So I was relieved when this happened. I think we've been through a period of three years of very divisive politics where the debate really had completely lost touch with what I thought was reality. So I think it was reasonable to be either for or against Brexit. I think you could take different views on it. My own view was that in terms of the pure economics, it was unlikely to make a dramatic difference to the future of the UK economy. So the idea that trading with the rest of Europe on WTO rules, World Trade Organization rules, which is how we trade with most of the rest of the world anyway, was going to be a complete disaster. It was a wild exaggeration. And I think the it was an attempt to block Brexit, wasn't it? If well, it was honest. an attempt. It, it was clearly an attempt to to change the result of the first referendum, which the same people would never have conceded a second referendum if the vote had gone the other way. So it did seem to be a very peculiar attitude. But what was clearly true was that the views on both sides were being motivated not really by a rational, calm assessment of the economics of it but by passionate differences of view about the politics. 
And this told us a great deal about the difference between the views of people who live and work in London and much of the rest of the country. That was the really big divide. And I could see that myself talking to people. And it was very unfortunate that really people on both sides took the position that if you were on the other side, then you were in some sense a rather ignorant and unpleasant individual. And that was damaging to our politics. And I'm, I'm glad that the election in December last year, I think, brought an end to that. How much longer, Mervyn, do you think that the Western world, including the UK, can continue to, quote, print money, can continue to rely on quantitative easing in order to defer, if you like, tough fiscal decisions? Because the reason governments can borrow so much at the moment and interest rates can stay low, it's basically because central banks are massively expanding their balance sheets, right? What's happening in the short run, I think, is that central banks are helping to smooth the time path of the enormous issuance of government debt over the next six to 12 months. And provided governments can repay central banks some of that borrowing and smooth that over that period, then we may not be in too much trouble. But the real problem, I think, is a much deeper one, which is that people have got into their heads the idea that if the economy is growing slowly, then whatever the cause of that slow growth, the answer has to be more central bank easing whether negative interest rates or just printing more money. This was an emergency measure after 2009, wasn't it, yes. justified? The Bank of England's QE programme was meant to be £50 billion. We're now up at $745 billion. So the emergency medicine has become a drug. It's become like a lifestyle choice. Well, I think this is a problem facing central banks around the world, which is they have all acquiesced in the view that the reason their economies are growing slowly is because the central bank is not doing sufficient to stimulate spending. And I think that is a serious error. And as a result, what we've done is to bring down long-term real interest rates to a level which doesn't provide much incentive for saving or investment in the Western world. And we're in a position where people can see that this pattern of spending and output and saving in different countries is not really sustainable but they don't know when or how it will come to an end. So there is enormous uncertainty, which itself is holding back investment. And I think it's a terrible mistake that the economics profession has engendered, which is to believe that it doesn't really matter why the economy is growing slowly. You just need to have more and more accommodative central bank policy, lower rates and print more money. And that isn't the answer to every cause of slower economic growth. But we know why this is happening, don't we? QE has friends in very powerful places. The financial markets like QE because it boosts share prices, boosts asset prices. It's good for people who are already wealthy. Governments like QE because it means they can keep borrowing money until beyond the next election. What's the end game here, Mervyn? How is this going to unwind? Because history suggests it won't be pretty. I think if we do see a serious erosion of central bank independence, then as you remarked, governments will find it very attractive to control central banks directly and to command the issuance and printing of more money to finance their spending plans. And that will lead us down the path in which after a period, we'll start to see inflation pick up. Inflation expectations will start to rise and we'll get back to the world from which we had happily escaped in the early 1990s, when after two decades of high and volatile inflation, 
and a very painful recession to get out of it, we finally emerged into a world of low and stable inflation. But we can easily go back to that bad old world if we lose the self-realization of the importance of central bank independence, and that leads down the path of higher inflation. I've talked to you over many years about economics, but I'm also very interested in your background because you are a grammar school boy from Wolverhampton, born in the late 40s from a a rather humble background. Your father was a railway porter, I think, um, who then retrained as a teacher. You are the sort of living embodiment of the social mobility of UK's post-war era. What are your views as you look back on your career now and think about the UK on social mobility? Do you think today's equivalent of Mervyn King growing up in Wolverhampton would have the same experiences, the same opportunities that have enabled you to develop your career? Well, I rather think not. And there was undoubtedly a generation of people who came through grammar schools and moved into public service, both in the civil service, diplomatic service, and Bank of England. And, you know, I was rather proud of being the first governor to come from a non-fee-paying school. But I think it is much harder now. And the opportunities for people to emerge from that background to be selected on the basis of merit. Now, the world in which I came out of wasn't ideal. We had not done enough for those people who weren't academically talented. But I think for those who are, we have have closed off many of the options. And I think that although education is a word that appears in many politicians' mantras, we've actually failed to, to grasp it and make a success of it. In your latest book, Radical Uncertainty, with John Kay, you draw widely on philosophy, anthropology. You lambast the sort of faux precision of economics and ropey economic forecasting. The economics profession has come in for a lot of criticism in recent years. Is that deserved? Well, some of it is and some of it isn't. I think that economic models can be very helpful in understanding the nature of the phenomenon. They give you insights in how to think about things. What they're very bad at doing is making predictions. And interestingly, what we've seen in the recent COVID-19 experience is that it's not just economic models that have the same failing. It's epidemiological models too. They're very helpful in understanding the nature of the problem. What they're very bad at doing is actually predicting the numbers because they depend on parameters, many of which are not scientific facts, but they're assumptions about human behavior. How quickly will people obey the injunction not to gather together and to stay at home? How quickly will people go back to work when they're told they now can go back to work? Mm. And it's a judgment, and it's not science. And so I think the big mistake that's been made in this whole epidemic has been the government saying, you know, we must do what the science tells us we must do. But the science doesn't tell us what we must do. It cannot give accurate quantitative predictions, and nor can economic models. And it is quite extraordinary how people go on using and wanting quantitative economic forecasts when we know how poor they are at predicting the future. And it's almost as if people don't want to be told you have to use your judgment here. Ask yourself, what's going on in the economy? Don't treat it as a black box model where you ask someone to give you a forecast and then you say, well, you know, don't blame me. You can blame them for the forecast they made. What we need to get back to is a situation in which 
governments feel able to say, look, here is something we haven't experienced before, COVID-19. We know that there can be pandemics. We know the general nature of an epidemic. We don't know how serious this one will be. We know that if we shut down the economy, they'll have an enormous cost. Therefore, we need to be cautious about doing that. But equally, if we just carry on as we are, the epidemic will spread very rapidly. And then almost try and create a, a debate, a conversation, which doesn't pretend to knowledge that we can't possibly have. This is the great problem, I think. Be more honest. Admit you don't know things. I yes. mean, I think the public are crying out for leaders that say, you know what, we don't really know what's going to happen, but we're going to give this a go. Acknowledge where there's uncertainty. And I think a lot of the public would trust politicians more. I think you're absolutely right. The ability to say, I don't know, but we have to make a decision. Given what we know now, this is, we think, the best course of action, but we're uns- uncertain about it. But we're going to monitor certain things and measure certain things, and we have to be prepared to change tack if the information suggests we're going down the wrong path. But that's a U-turn. That's a U-turn. My God, how yeah. can you make a yeah. U-turn? So this, <laughs> this is a mature response to the, to the issue, and we don't seem to have an environment in which governments feel able to do that. I remember going to the Parliamentary Treasury Committee, and in response to one question, I said, well, I don't know. And they were outraged. And they said, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, well, I don't know. And they said, but it's your job to know. And I said, no, it isn't. There are certain things that I don't know. And with great respect, none of you know either. And I think this is the the issue that comes up with decision-making under uncertainty. You have to make a decision. But it's very important to keep asking the question, what is going on? And if you have a, a view, a narrative, as we describe it in the book, you must keep challenging that narrative. And you may need other people and diverse views to help you challenge that narrative. And amending the narrative is the mark of good policy, not the fact that you made a mistake before. We have to get to a world where people understand that. Mervyn King, Lord King, thanks for visiting Planet Normal. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you, Liam. And Radical Uncertainty by Mervyn King, written with the economist John Kay, is out now. Alison, a dismal scientist who piques your interest? Oh, I thought that was such a great interview, Liam. I mean, he's talking at the end about maturity. Isn't it wonderful to have a man who, very, very knowledgeable, but with this, uh, you know, extremely kind of down to a refreshing, honest attitude? I'm sure the listeners will love that. It was also, I really like seeing you with your economist KP on today. I think that's. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I go into a phone box and I come out as super economist. <laughs> well, you are a super economist, and people, people probably don't know that as much about you. You are a super economist. You know, I'm Josephine Public. I glaze over. If I hear QE, quantity, of easing. I think that's what happens to my trousers when I've put on weight during <laughs> lockdown. You know, it's called the quarantine 15, 15 pounds on in quarantine. And I think that, that I wasn't going to mention it. No, don't mention it. <laughs> Luckily, no one can see me. I think there's a lack of understanding of economics in the general population. But what someone like me can latch on to in what Mervyn King was saying is that we focused on the health, is the NHS safe and so on, and what was not really being raised properly. What are the damaging consequences of this lockdown going to be? And that that's now the brick wall that we're hurtling towards, isn't it? It is. I think the political debate is fast shifting. Unemployment is rising. The end of the furlough scheme is in sight. It's going to be phased out over the coming months and it will be discontinued completely in October. And it's 
pretty clear with the best will in the world. And even if there isn't a second wave, quite a few of those people on furlough, you know, their jobs are in danger. Now, there's a full write-up of this Mervyn King interview in the Telegraph business section on Thursday, the same day that this Planet Normal podcast is released. And I go through some of the more technical things that he said about central banking and the Eurozone and all the rest of it. For me, though, one of the standout lines was when he said this idea that trading under WTO rules will be, you know, a disaster. That was just a way of trying to reverse the Brexit referendum and have a second referendum. I mean, that's an incredible intervention from somebody who's, you know, one of the world's leading former central bankers. It certainly was. And I remember during the debate, we sort of thought that, I mean, you will have had much more knowledge than I will have had, but, you know, Mervyn King talking about a wild exaggeration of the yeah. drawbacks of WTO in an attempt to change the result of the referendum. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that, that is fear. really striking stuff, isn't it? And also, you know, I've never heard Mervyn King speak out. You know, he's in his 70s now. He is rounding himself out as a public figure. Everybody knows he's really into cricket and he's a big Aston Villa fan. He does a lot of charity work encouraging cricket in state schools, by the way. But I thought it was great to hear him speak only briefly, because he is quite a shy man, about his own background as a grammar school boy making his way from pretty humble origins and the fact that Mervyn King these days would have no chance. I think that that's something I know that that's something that brought us together to do this podcast in a way, wasn't it? Was social mobility and the lack of chances now for kids from our background. I mean, both my parents were in South Wales from, you know, working class homes and they both went to a terrific grammar school. And what grammar schools did for Mervyn King's generation was it leveled the playing field in the sense that it didn't have all the all the fripperies and the fancy add-ons of private education, but it did have that rock solid traditional education, which enabled bright kids to compete roughly on a level with the privately educated. And something I feel strongly about, Liam, is that Mervyn King being the governor of the Bank of England or Margaret Thatcher being the prime minister, coming from those humble backgrounds is going to give them a different perspective. So earlier in the podcast, we talked about diversity at the BBC. This is what we mean, isn't it? Diversity in public life, people who've had a dad who was a railway porter, who knows what it's like to maybe not have enough money at the end of the week. And I'd really like our governors of the Bank of England to have that knowledge in their head. We shall see. Let's finish, Alison, with some messages from readers and Planet Normal listeners. I know we've been texting each other all week, haven't <laughs> we? You've been tickled pink by a, a quite incredible stream of emails we've had to Planet Normal about childhood elf and safety, 70s style. Yeah, I, this got started on Twitter and I ran with it and it has been making me and my husband, Anthony, weep with laughter. So one of the ones I absolutely loved was from Richard Armstrong, who said, youth club leader took us on a trip to the countryside, 15 of us in his triumph Toledo, That's a including four in the boot. The last kids in the back had to be slotted in through an open window. I remember going to scout camp as a kid and we would literally chuck everything in the back of a furniture van, which one of the dads drove for a living, and we would all you know, sit in the back of the van. <laughs> we had another game, which wouldn't be allowed now. It's called street skiing. In the middle of the skateboard craze, in order to make our skateboards go faster, we'd tie a rope to the back of a friend's 50cc motorbike mm -hmm. and they would literally drag us up and down the streets, <laughs> weaving in and out of parked cars, street skiing. I think when you read all these things, you just do actually think, how on earth did any of us live? There's a 
particularly lovely one from, I think it's Sir Malcolm Colquhoun, who wrote to me at the Telegraph. He said he his family lived on the banks of Loch Lomond. Oh. And he said his, his older brother had said, come on, Malk, we're going fishing. The parents were away. Malcolm was nine. We set out in a tiny wooden dinghy, no life jackets. I was a bit puzzled, to be honest, by the absence of fishing rods. We got to the middle of the bay and Torquil produced a hand grenade that my father had brought home from the war. He withdrew the pin, counted up to some number <laughs> in a manner he had seen in the black and white film, then lobbed the grenade as far as he could, just as well he was a strong boy. <laughs> The grenade made a gratifyingly huge eruption of water. Soon after, dead and stunned fish began to float to the surface. We scudded around with a shrimping net, collecting as many as we could before heading home in triumph. <laughs> we have, I think we have got, got to a point, you know, where we almost mollycoddle our children too much. Um, stranger danger obviously is a big thing and you have to teach your children the limits but I think gone are the days where in the summer holidays you just disappear at 10 o'clock in the morning and as long as you were back by the time it was dark, you no mobile phones, you had 50p in your pocket, your parents had no idea where you were. No, you were basically chucked out, weren't you, after breakfast and then with a packet of smoky bacon crisps and a cheese and pickle sandwich and, you know, come back when it's dark. I mean, lots of the listeners said that, you know, like me, I mean, I we lived on a, a new estate and, and and houses were going up and we just spent most of the time with kind of lighting fires in sewage pipes. I mean, now, you know, but yeah, you're right. And I, you know, I've become a much more of a... A molly coddling mother. Mm. I think that the kids have grown up. I mean, I, I, did you walk to school? I mean, I, I walked to school from when I was very yeah, tiny. Yeah, I walked to school from the age of five. Yeah. And then from the age of 10, I cycled about four miles to school, including around a very, very, very busy four lane roundabout. Yes. <laughs> and if you tell the youth to do that, they won't believe you. They won't believe you. Apologies to, to listeners from Yorkshire. That's it. They've all abandoned us now. So that's it. That's our fifth episode of Planet Normal. Now comes the painful, turbulent re-entry to planet Earth. If you want to comment on anything we've said or anything in the news over the coming days, please write to us at the usual address, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Yes, and I should just have said that another Alison did write to us today saying, I love the new podcast, Liam and Alison, not just a breath of fresh air. It's a storm of fresh air. It's an army. Tsunami of fresh air, yeah. Planet Normal is free to listen to and you can do so on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app. Now, I know people get a bit confused about this, as do I, but subscribing to the podcast on an app is different to being a subscriber to the Telegraph. But If you subscribe to the show on a podcast app, all it means is that it will automatically load the latest episode for you when we release a new one. My mum found out she could do that this week and she was thrilled. If you'd like to listen to Planet Normal on a smartphone or a tablet and you're not sure how to subscribe to it on an app, please email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and we will try to help, or more exactly, Louisa, our genius producer, will try to help. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Telegraph itself... As a Planet Normal fan, you can get your first 30 days free and that gives you access to all the Telegraph's broader news surface. And you can do that subscription at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. And we put that link in the show notes on your podcast app. And thank you so much, as always, for your positive ratings and reviews. If we had written them ourselves, that's what we would have said. Please keep them coming. They really help other listeners to find us. They're better written than we could do, right? (laughs) 
I particularly <laughs> enjoyed this one from Mo from Ilkley. Thank you, Alison and Liam. You express what so many of us are feeling, but there appears to be no outlet for it in much of the mainstream media. Your guests have been terrific. A real breath of fresh air. Oh, fantastic. So as we leave Planet Normal and speed back to our mad, mad world, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theo Leloudis, and to The Telegraph for making it all possible. Until next Thursday and every Thursday, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>